Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Good morning. What a week. What an amazing, amazing week. I got to spend most of my week with uh, nine of us that went from our DP student ministry this last week in Kentucky and uh, the great state, the great bluegrass state that Pastor Chad so dearly loves as he hails from the great state of Kentucky. And and what just a joy it was just not only to serve with this team, but also just to get to time away to, to develop and build some community and some relationships. And uh, as I was just uh, reflecting on the trip the last few days, I've just been thinking, you know, how awesome it is because right now I already see in my mind's eye a mobilized army of not hundreds, but thousands of young adults over the next 10, 15, 20 years out of these churches. And to think that these nine got to be the first ever mission trip. And, uh, and I know that in my heart. I see that in my spirit. And uh, what is so exciting is just the, the transformation that happens uh, as you get your life and your focus off of yourself. Amen? I always want us as a church, not just as a student ministry, but as a church as a whole, contextually, that we would seek to serve as his church rather than seek to be served by the church. And uh, finding what it is that God has put in our hand to do, and uh, as even as we ended our series last week on DP Strategy, talking about the, the work that is, is fit for your field, where God has called you to be, as Pastor Chad uh, ended our series last week uh, in an amazing, amazing time. If you didn't get a message card when you came in, you can raise your hand right quick, and uh, an usher in the back will serve you. It'll help you follow along with what God is going to speak to us and I believe is clear uh, his direction and his will uh, to speak to our hearts today as we jump in to a brand new message series. I'm just going to say up front, I am very, very excited about starting a brand new message series today. And uh, I've, been, uh, I've been thinking through this uh, for a while, Pastor Chad, and we've talked, you know, as we work in a team leadership model about what God would say to us as a community and uh, we're starting a brand new series today that we're calling Unlikely Saints. Can you say that with me? Say Unlikely Saints. It's going to happen over the next five weeks. And we're going to talk about how people throughout Scripture God uses. God uses the most unlikely of candidates. It's not ability that God is looking for. It's availability that God's looking for. God displays his power even in the midst of vessels that are very, very weak. He displays his goodness and his will. But a lot of times what happens in our lives is we get so caught up in our past, much like people in Scripture did, that we're not able to get past our past. In other words, many of us through series of life events and occurrences, we've, we've got labels that are attached to our name, maybe sin that we so frequently gave into in times of our past, maybe labels that people gave to us, maybe, maybe we allowed people to put us in a box and then they stamped us with a label, and we've just lived out that false identity for many, many years of our life. The truth is, if we're honest in here today, many of us have been held in bondage from things in our past. And a lot of times that very bondage that we feel disqualifies us from being used of the Lord. And so I'm excited about this message because I want to talk to you today about two individual characters that are amazing, amazing testimonies in Scripture. But somewhere in our past, just like these two, someone called us something, someone did something to us, someone characterized us in, a, in, in some way, and maybe even ourselves. We believed a lie about ourselves that ultimately isn't true, and 
we live our lives under these labels of, of things that, that God has not called us to be identified with. And so just to kind of get into this message today, what I want to do is I want to give you the name of a kind of well-known person who has a label attached to their name. So I want to give the name the label. And I want all of us here at the church, I want all of us, if you can just kind of help me out for a minute, it'll be fun, it'll be a good exercise, and I want you just to respond, okay? You can respond aloud, all right? I'm going to give you a name, you tell me the label. It's Attila the... There you go. It's not bad. Attila the, you can do better. Attila the, Conan the, barbarian. Okay. Billy the, that wasn't too good. Billy the, you got Buffy the, and Winnie the, and make sure all the three-year-olds, right, understand. You, you understand in our lives, we think like this as a society, in fact. We give a name, then we attach the label. We give an, a clarity of, of, of a person's ascribed name, and then we give the label that identifies them, that characterizes that individual. You know, when you think of individuals in Scripture, they're very much real, real people. If you look at things the wrong way, you can get yourself in trouble, right? You know that's true. If you look at something the wrong way, you can get in a lot of trouble. Just like a couple of weeks ago when I was down in Kennesaw visiting one of our members at the, at, at the hospital there at Kennestone, I got out real quick and it was a crazy experience because a fire alarm went off and I got stuck in a back hallway and I was there for about two hours, supposed to be there about 20 minutes and I get in the car and I'm flustered. I got two, two kids in the back, Meredith's in the front seat. And if you know what I'm talking about, you come down the hill from Kennestone and they have two lanes that are coming this way, but they don't mind to tell you that there is no left turn into that first part because those are two two lanes coming one direction, and I turn into those two lanes, and here I go, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, whoa, there's cars on both sides of these lanes coming at me, and thankfully, because I looked at something the wrong way, I could have gotten myself in major trouble, and they stopped. I backed up. I, I think I went over the median a little bit, turned around, went back up to the red light, and got on the other side, right? But the median was disconnecting the two. When you look at things the wrong way, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. It's true in a lot of different ways of our life. Like, if you look at God certain ways, you get yourself in trouble. All of us, what I've learned, have the tendency to look at God in one of a few ways. For instance, if you look at God like he's a benevolent grandfather, just a really, really kind grandfather, you're gonna think you can get away with anything. There's gonna be a behavior that's attached to perception. It's always the case. It's always the case in the way we treat people. Okay, because you know that's true. You can go to your grandfather, you can stamp on his toe, drop a, you know, a hammer on his toe, you can set his cat on fire, you can key his car, you can, you can you know, flood his house, and you can come back to grandpa and he'll give you an invoice, right? And, or give you a hug, I should say, and send an invoice to your dad, right? He won't, he won't even get mad at you. Maybe you don't have a grandfather like that. If you look at God as a benevolent grandfather, you think you can get away with anything you want. If you look at God like he's an authoritarian, a lot of people do that in the deep south right here, particularly where we live. They look at God like he's an authoritarian, right? So you'll think that God's standing on the edge of life waiting to smash your head in. And in fact, you think that he enjoys when you make mistakes. Here's this God, all of his authority, all of his power ready to exercise judgment. Now listen, you might respect God if you view him that way, but you're not gonna wanna spend a whole lot of time with him, right? It's always gonna have a behavior attached to the perception. If you view God as a grandfather, you wanna spend a lot of time with him, but you're not going to respect him very much when it's time to bring the gavel down. You'll think that he's never a judge. You'll just think he's the one who loves. There's behavior attached. If you view God as an authoritarian, you sure might respect him, but you don't want to spend much 
time with him. Here's what I've learned. Some people view God primarily as a king. So they think to themselves as a servant and a master type of relationship. Some people think of God like he's their pal. They created an entire clothesline out of this. Jesus is your homeboy. No, he's actually not your homeboy. So we just kind of hang out with one another. Therefore, he's no longer Lord of glory. He's just a homeboy. People think that. The truth is, everything I just said is true, but it's not true individually. It's all of those are true together. God is really, really amazing in his complexity. If you look at God only through one of those lenses, you look at God the wrong way, you're going to live your life the wrong way. But if you look at God and his complexity, then every single day you're going to turn a new page on God. You're always going to learn. You're going to, be, you're going to never be complacent. Why? Because you're always learning more about his nature. You're always learning more about his character. You're going to find that God's a just judge, but he's also full of mercy and grace. God is an amazing, amazing king, but he also called his friends, no longer servants. See, he's all of those things. It's all true. It's all amazing. That's how amazing and how complex or we could say complicated, God is. Now, there's this beautiful moment in Scripture. You, you know it very well. You probably heard the story before. Moses is in the desert. He's messed his whole life up, right? He's now, he's now 80 years old because 40 years he lived in Pharaoh's palace, and he had a great life. Moses was like the adopted son of Pharaoh. That's the best family you could be a part of in that time period. He had everything he wanted at his fingertips. He had all wealth, and at 40 years old, literally he could snap his finger and get anything he wants. He could get anything. He had had peace in times of conflict for Egypt, in times of war. He was the son of the king. And at 40 years old, he messes it all up. He kills an Egyptian that was beating down one of his, his own people, the Hebrew people. He goes and kills somebody. He's wandering out in the desert for 40 years. He's on the backside of Midian. He's married a woman named Zipporah. Her dad is Jethro, and now he's employed by his father-in-law. He feels like a failure, nothing going on. And God, right there in the midst of it, chased after him and started a fire in this bush, and the fire wouldn't go out. If you've heard this story, nod your head. We know this story, right? So, so now Moses walks up to the burning bush, and, uh, which seems kind of unusual altogether. And he asked God, he said, God, what's your name? And God says, my name is Ego Ami. My name is I Am. I am that I am. Which seems like an unusual answer to that question, right? Because if you came up to me and you said, what's your name? I wouldn't say I am. I would say my name is Craig, right? But there's an amazing point in that. If God were to, talk, to talk, uh, tell Moses his full name, all of history wouldn't have been enough time to explain who he is. <laughs> and he's got some people deliver. What are you saying, Craig? Because God is everything good. He's everything amazing. He is all things to all people. He's everything in super abundant form. God is un- that unbelievable. He's that amazing. He was making a statement to Moses. He was saying, Moses, you don't have the time, and I don't really have all the time, and history doesn't have all the time for me to explain myself to you. So let's just say it. Let's just do this. My name is I am, I am. And whatever you need, you fill in the blank. And by the way, that's sermon enough for some of you today that are just sitting right here in this room. That's sermon enough because you need a God that's something impossible today. You need a God that's something beyond rational reason today. You need a God right now in the midst of a situation that's beyond what you're able to do. And I just came to tell you from the outset, I got 5,000, 10,000, maybe 12,000 years of history behind me that God's not only faithful, God's not only there each and every time, God's not only a provider, God's not only a savior, not only is he trustworthy, not only is 
he reliable? He is what you need today. He is still the I am. That's who he is. He sings over us. He talks over us. He declares over us. And I think that's just really amazing for an introduction. I really do. Because I'm not really got to the point yet. But, but I think that's amazing that, that God says I am that I am. God's not only what you need. He's more than what you need. He's amazing. He's unbelievable. He's still that, and he's still chasing after people on the backside of deserts. He's still going after people who feel like failures. He's still going after individuals who feel like they have no purpose or desire or design of God in their life, just like he chased Moses in the desert. That's who God is. So he says to Moses, we don't have time, Moses, for me to tell you who I am. You're going to be here for all eternity. So here's what you're going to do. Tell Pharaoh, I am that I am. Moses will be dead before I get to the end of the first chapter. So I'm not going to deal with that. What I want to do today is I want to deal with something different. I don't want to deal with who God is in this message. I want to talk about what God says about you in this message. I want to talk about what God thinks about you. What God states about you. Because while it's hard to get your head around who God is, it's not hard to get your head around what he thinks of you. What he declares of you. I only have one point to my sermon. I'm going to get more simpler and simpler in my preaching. It's going to help to ingest and hold on. One point. Here it is. I'm going to give you the whole point. Then I'm going to give you the illustrations the rest of the way out. Here's the point. It's something you'll remember if you pay attention. The point is, and it's true, and I'll prove it to you. The point is, here it is. God believes in you more than you think, and God's plan for you is bigger than you believe. That's all I want to say. God literally believes in you more than you think, and God's plan for you is bigger than you believe. Say it with me. God believes in you more than you think, and God's plan for you is bigger than you believe. Now, every story in the Bible, any person in the Bible, that is their story. Every person in this room that's been a Christian for any period of time, you reflect that story. But let me just give you a couple of biblical examples to make this point that God believes in you more than you think, and God's plan for you is bigger than you believe. What I want to do on week one is pick two individuals for two reasons. I want to give you the two reasons why I have picked Peter, why I've picked Paul. I'm going to push Rahab. I intended to share her story today, the gospel according to Rahab. We're going to push her off two more weeks, all right? I want to talk to you about Peter, and I want to talk to you about Paul. First reason why I'm using them is because they're really famous. I just felt that if any of you in this room have any acquaintance with Christianity whatsoever, you've heard of Peter, and you've heard of Paul, even if it's in the phrase, rob Peter to pay Paul, okay? You've at least heard that, right? At some point down the line, that's reason number one. Now, reason number two is that they were least likely people in all of Scripture to do what they did. That we could say they were the most unlikely candidates. Nobody in this room, and I'll go ahead and tell you in the end of the sermon, just please don't leave. Nobody has a better excuse than Peter or Paul to think that God doesn't have a plan for them or that God doesn't believe in them. So let's start with Peter. I want to give you a couple scenes of Peter's life. First of all, Peter was a failure. Uh, you don't think of Peter as a failure, right? You think of Peter as victorious, but Peter failed pretty badly. Let's just say this. The Bible is filled, church, with really real people, okay? And God didn't go one day and pick a bunch of superhumans to be on his team. He picked regular people with potential, but also with great problems, now, if we divide the life of Peter up into a couple of scenes, if we divide his entire life into four scenes, the first thing you're going to notice is that when God called Peter, God called Peter knowing his potential and knowing his problems. If you spent any time in church, if you've been fortunate enough to have spent time in church, I didn't as a young child, I want to say you've also become unfortunate 
because you've become too well acquainted with these biblical characters. And that's an unfortunate thing. You become so well acquainted with them because you're used to hearing about them and you look at them through their triumphant lens, not through their failures. We only actually a lot of times talk about their triumphant lens, but the Bible is filled with real people. They have real challenges like you do. They have real weaknesses like I do. They were just like you and me. And Jesus, by the way, when he picked his apostles, he didn't get stuck with these people. Let's understand, he picked these people. He and his wisdom chose these people. So if Jesus was picking a dream team to change the world by our standards, he never would have picked these 12 men. He never would have mentioned these people. Listen, there wasn't a single rabbi in all 12 of them, a single teacher among his disciples. Christianity is, in order for it to be passed on, must be taught, and Jesus didn't even pick a teacher. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. He trained teachers, he trained apostles, but Christianity has to be taught. And he doesn't pick a teacher. He didn't go after one rabbi. He doesn't go after one teacher of the law, not one of them. There was a bunch of working class fishermen, a tax collector, hated, still hated today, right? Come on, April 15th. You know, we, we, we still can't stand tax collectors. It was a whole group of unlikely people who... Jesus used to change the world. And by the way, Peter was the least likely among them. In fact, Peter's someone that if you really take time to understand his whole personality, read all the way through the Gospels, the one thing you're going to discover about Peter is he's the type of person that only his mom would like. You ever met those people that only their mom can like them? Okay, you haven't? Maybe just me? Maybe I've pastored a few hundred. No, I'm just kidding. A few of them in the past, right? Peter was a crazy, crazy guy. He's the type of guy that talks before he thinks. He jumps before he looks. He's the type of guy that everybody in the room knows that nobody should say anything at this moment and just back out of it really carefully. And yet Peter has voluminous words to say at that moment. It's like, Peter, do not open your mouth, right? This is Peter. All throughout the Gospels, we see Peter. Peter's the guy with a really strong personality. He becomes the leader of all the disciples. He's the guy who's overconfident. He's more than a little bit arrogant. Every time he appears on the scene, he takes charge of the situation, whether he was given that responsibility or he took it upon it by himself. That's his personality. Scene one, God calls Peter. I want to read it for you. Matthew chapter four, notice how Jesus calls Peter, starting in verse 18. Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. Let's pause for a second. A lot more text to read, but let's pause. Andrew, Peter's little brother, more than likely he's his little brother, was also a disciple. I don't know if you ever thought about this before. Can you imagine being Peter's little brother? Think of that dynamic for a minute. We could do a whole year sermon series on just that. Think about being the younger brother of Peter, the apostle, right? Think of all those family dynamics that go on in the midst of that kind of family, okay? Imagine that. These are real people, and it's something very interesting, but that's another sermon for another time. The Bible says they were casting their nets into the lake because they were fishermen. Now, notice this. Jesus said, come follow me, and I will send you out... There's got to be more. I'm standing on the edge, ready to cast my net. Use me, Lord. Use me, Lord. There's so much more. Ready to cast their net to what? He said, I'm going to send you to fish for people. Jesus said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Question. If we're not fishing for men, are we really following then? According to Jesus, it's called no. That's what he says. I'm going to call you out to become a fisher of men. And the Bible says, and at once they left their nets and followed him. Now, this is really interesting. 
Because if you spend some time reading the Bible, that's a common phrase of Jesus. He says, become fishers of men. It's an analogy Jesus used to preach the gospel. I want you to go catch people. That's a really weird thing to say, though, right? Can we just agree that the Bible says some really weird things, and we, we, we act like it don't? But hey, here's what Jesus says. Hey, fishermen, let's go hook people. And we just read it with like, you know, 2,000 years removed, this pious kind of distance from the text. But no, it's weird. Let's go fish for people. You'd have to be a little bit crazy to follow that call in the first place, which is why Jesus might have went to the crazy dudes out on the lake, right? you got to be a little bit crazy, a little bit adventurous. But not only that, this is Peter's livelihood. You say, what do you mean? Yeah, this is his business. This is Jesus showing up when everything's going good in your company. He comes to the business CEO, and he says, why don't you drop everything and come out in the desert and wander around with me and preach for a few years? And by the way, I know you're not a preacher. I know you've never even spoken before. You're a fisherman. By the way, in this time period, he was probably a fisherman because he couldn't cut it as a preacher. I don't know if you've ever heard that before because every Jewish mom, their dream for their little boy was to be a teacher of the law. So he probably couldn't have been a teacher of the law. So he had to become a fisherman. So he had to keep on doing. So it was like some people were like the Ivy League and then they made it there and everybody else just kind of did other things. And Peter was probably a fisherman because his father was a fisherman. He just continued the family business. Jesus shows up on the shore and he says, hey, Peter, why don't you come fish for people with me? And Peter drops everything and goes and follows Jesus. Now the other biblical account of this to me is a little bit even more interesting because Jesus is on the shore. They're out there fishing and he yells out to the fisherman. He says, hey, this will be really important for the end of the message, by the way. You catching anything? No, had caught a thing. Throw your net on the other side. The Bible says the disciples threw their net on the other side. Tons of fish come into the boat and it's an absolute miracle. And then he said, follow me. And they came and followed him. They came and followed him. Notice that. That's scene one. Everything's good. Peter's full of faith. He leaves his fishing business. All things are well. You just got born again, if you can want to put your synonymous scenes to this scene. Scene number one, you started following Jesus. Everything seems to be good. He comes and joins Jesus on this great adventure. He's on top of the world. Scene two. Scene one, God calls Peter. Scene two, Peter is arrogant. We could call him hubristic, prideful. Peter's very, very arrogant. I don't have time to tell you all about Peter's life. Here's what I want to do. Scene number one, God calls Peter. Three years later, scene two. Now, three years after following this man named Jesus, the Bible says, when Jesus, Matthew 16, came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. The region of Caesarea Philippi said to his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? We'll get to that in just a minute. But let me tell you about Caesarea Philippi. Just for a moment. Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. This is a famous city in the time period here. Very, very famous. It's a city that's really, 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 really far away. Let me go ahead and tell you, Jesus doesn't go anywhere further in all of his years of ministry in three years than he does Caesarea Philippi. It's the furthest place you can go. If you don't hear what I'm about to say of the geography of this, you're going to miss the whole message. So let me, let me speak to you about the geography of Caesarea Philippi for just a moment. If you're watching the news right now, you see those maps of the Middle East, right? All this stuff happening with Israelis, happened in Gaza Strip, the Palestinians, the Syrians. It just goes on and on. Iraqis, it's a crazy time in the world right now. We know that. Just turn on the news. There's a place between Israel and modern-day Syria. Imagine Israel. We've got Mediterranean Sea on our left. We've got Red Sea on the bottom left. Saudi Arabia currently here. Persian Gulf. Tigris, Euphrates River. And you got Israel. 
Now, right above Israel now in modern day is Syria, okay? And in the top of the Sea of Galilee, which is the northernest part where Jesus would have stayed in Capernaum, he took them north of there to a region, a plain that's between modern day Syria and the Sea of Galilee called the Golan Heights. It's a plain that separates Syria from Israel. Now, up in the Golan Heights was a city called Caesarea Philippi, a really famous city. Here's what the city was famous for. It was famous actually for a lot of things, but mainly famous for one thing. There was a temple inside of Caesarea Philippi, a huge temple, and it was a temple to a famous pagan god. That pagan god's name was Pan, spelled Pan, P-A-N, but it's Pan. That's where the god Pan was worshipped. His name was Pan. They built a famous temple to Pan on the face of a rock face. The front of a rock face. They built it on the front of a rock face. Why, Craig? Because the famous Jordan River that Jesus was baptized in, that's still flowing through Israel today, that I was in, it starts in the Dew Mountains of Mount Hermon. When the dew comes down the mountain, it goes under the ground, and the Jordan River's first place to sight, the human eye, came up out of this cave. That cave there in Golan Heights, or Caesarea Philippi, was the place they built a pagan temple. A huge hole, right? Underneath this grave, or underneath this ground, this cave and this mountain, it went all the way through Israel. So up to that point in the Jordan River, it's basically snowmelt, okay? So they built this cave around this, or this temple around this cave to the God Pond. Now, there are a couple of different uh, gods in pagan society at that time, 2,000 years ago. Some of the gods were cute little gods that you uh, bought figurines to play for your kids to play with. But then some of the gods you didn't get anywhere near because you were scared to death of them. Pond was the latter. Pan was the most feared god of all pagan gods. He's, he was frightful to the people. Everyone was scared of Pan, but people worshiped Pan for particular reasons. If you study this out, one of the main reasons is they thought he was a fertility god. So people would come from the entire Middle East. They would go for days, months, and years. If they couldn't have kids, they would get a sacrifice, go right there where the water is coming up out of the ground at the temple, uh, the pagan temple, and then literally they would take their, their, uh, their, their, their special you know, offering or whatever it is because Pawn gave you the special ability to have a child. And so people would travel for miles and miles, and they were terrified to make this sacrifice, right, just in case uh, Pawn had mercy on them and would give them a child. So they climbed this mountain, scared to death. You can read the history of this. And they would go there and make, this sacrifice of their animal, they would throw the sacrifice where the Jordan River emerged from the mountain that the temple had been bent around. And if the sacrifice was accepted by pawn, then it would vanish in the river. Then the rest of their sacrifice would be gone. It would go on downstream down the river. It was believed that if the sacrifice was rejected by pawn, it shot the sacrifice out of the river back onto the land. If that happened, if your sacrifice wasn't accepted, then what would happen is you would reverse your course and you went days and hours and miles and months and maybe years in despair all the way back to your home. Now, in the time between you throwing your sacrifice in and to see if Pawn had accepted the sacrifice, linguists call this Pawn-ick, panic. Panic. You're in a complete terror, panic. Is this sacrifice going to be acceptable or not? Is Pawn going to 
allow it to be accepted and give me a child or is he going to throw it back on the shore? It was a most terrifying moment and a most terrifying place. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to take my disciples all the way to the gate right there at Caesarea Philippi and the shadow of this pagan God. And here's what's amazing. In the popular culture of this time period, that hole where the river came out, where they threw sacrifices upon, it was referred to as the gate of hell, the gate of Hades. So with that understanding, let's listen to what Jesus says standing there at Caesarea Philippi. Philippi, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, where Pon is, he set his disciples down, ready for some lunch, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, and said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he says, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, again, these are real, real people in real, real situations. They were shed, sitting in the shadow of Pon. It wasn't a big city. It was up on a mountain. He's sitting there with his disciples, and he does what any good Bible teacher does. It's time for Bible quiz. You ready? Jeopardy, ding, 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 ding. We played Bible trivia this week. It was quite an experience on the DP student mission trip. But, but this is what Bible teachers do. They, they start Bible quizzes. So Jesus says, hey, guys, here's a question. What are the people saying about me on the streets? That's our modern vernacular. Hey, what are the people saying? What do the people say about me? Who do they say that I am? Because these people really can't get their head around this Jesus guy, right? I mean, he's preaching stuff that sometimes sounds like the Bible, but then he says, you've heard it said, but I say it another way. It don't sound like the Bible once he says it the other way. And, and he's, he's a little bit crazy because he's healing blinded people, but yet we're trying to throw him off cliffs, and he, and he goes through the crowd. I mean, just, just, they can't get their head around Jesus. Who in the world is Jesus? He's saying crazy things about the temple. He's saying, you know, tear it down. I'll rebuild in three days. He's talking about everybody being a priest. There's only one priest. That don't make sense. What is going on? He's healing people. People can't put their head around. Jesus is saying, so he looks at his disciples, they're sitting at the campfire, at least I like to think, and he says to them, um, uh, guys, what are people saying about me on the streets? And one of the disciples says, oh, they say you're a prophet. And another one kicks in and says, oh, they say you're a teacher. Another guy says, hey, some of them think you're a rabbi. Hey, some of them think you're Jeremiah. <laughs> you know, one of them says, oh, the other day, he thought you were Elijah. He thought you came back down with the whirlwind. They go around and answer the question. I love it. They go around the whole circle, right? Everybody's get to get the time. You ever been a Bible teacher? You get around Bible students. They all got to have their moment to shine. So it's time to tell. This is what it is, right? They have their deal. And then the Bible says, Peter answered and said, hey, guys, shut up. I know the answer. Okay, here it is. Ready? I know the answer. You, Jesus, are the Messiah the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock that I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell shall not overcome my church. What an amazing moment, folks. What an amazing, amazing moment. Jesus has gone to the furthest place he's ever gone in ministry. He was in a city on the outskirts of everything, and it took days to get to this city. And here he is in the shadow of the gates of hell, and he comes forward to make a statement, to make the statement that I am creating my church, and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. You've got to get this down in your spirit and get this down in your heart. This is what Jesus says looking in the midst of a, a pagan culture and a pagan society. The gates of hell will not overcome what I'm creating out of you 12. <laughs> Woo, this is an unlikely candidate, Peter. Peter Peter's an amazing character because you think that's an amazing moment. 
By the way, that's still true. Let me just say, for thousands of years, the people have tried to kill Christianity. They tried to kill the church over and over again. The stories are amazing. One of the great reformers, I love this reformer, he said, the church is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. I like that. That's what he said. Many a hammer has been worn out by this church. You can't kill the church. And it's not true because of force. It's true because of the love that's in it that transcends all things. It's a whole other sermon for another day. But it's not by force, it's by his love that's unconquerable. And here's Peter having a Bible quiz. They go around and try to answer the question, and Peter gives the right answer to the question. Would you just think for a minute with me about the group dynamics? you got 12 disciples. They're all going back and forth to each other, arguing. A few chapters later, we know they're arguing because a few chapters later, they argue about who's going to sit at the right hand of Jesus. And they're at odds with each other. These are human beings, just like we're human beings. They're trying to figure out who's the best, who's the brightest, who's the best of the group. Who's going to get closer? Who's going to be in the inner circle? Who's the pastor, rabbi, going to quote and encourage more in front of the rest of the others, right? This is all human nature. Competition. They're sitting around, and the teacher, who happens to be Jesus, says, what are people saying about me? And they say, you're a prophet. No, they say, you're Elijah. No, people are saying you're a teacher. Peter says, I got it, guys. I got it. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you got it, Peter. Ding, 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 ding. That's the right answer. You got the gold star. If you're playing upward, you get the Christ-like star, the white one. Here it is. He sticks the sticker on and gets the right answer. He's on top of the world. Scene three, Peter fails. (laughs) Miserably fails. Only a few verses later, he fails badly. Three, three verses later, listen to what it says, starting verse 21. From that time on, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He would suffer many things in the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Now, they're not thinking this is going to happen. They're thinking Jesus is going to kick out Rome because he's the Messiah, and Rome is taking over Israel. He's going to restore the priesthood because it become, just honest, a little bit corrupt. He's going to be the powerful Messiah that's going to set the earthly order. So they're saying, that's right, you're the Messiah, let's go to march to Rome and settle this right now. Let's get all of this done. You ever felt like that way with Jesus? Thinking it's like us against them, right? Let's go get this done. Jesus throws an absolute curveball. Because they see that his church is going to last. Three verses later, he says, you're right, I'm the Messiah. We're going to Jerusalem. We get to Jerusalem. We're going to suffer many things. The hands of chief priests, teachers, and the son of man, that's me. I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. A human being, created by the hands of the one he's looking at his face, took the Lord of the glory, Lord of the universe, and began to rebuke him. Colossians 1, by the way, says, by Jesus and in Jesus, everything was made. That means Jesus made everything, including the dirt that's between Peter's toes at that time. Jesus had made that. That means, as I was reading a few months ago, there's a star out there in space now that's 250 million miles in diameter, and Jesus made that by breathing, and Peter took him off to the side and rebuked him to his face. This is Peter. He looks at the Lord and rebukes him. That's failure at its finest. There's no greater failure. This is how Jesus responded. Peter said, never, Lord. This will never happen to you. 
And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So how in the world do we go from three verses from gold star, Christ-like star for upward, to, to your, your Satan, Peter? I mean, like, what, what happened there? What happened there is he's human. That's what happens to you and I, too. He's just human. That's what it means to be human. Now he's failed miserably. And Jesus picked him and knew what he was getting himself into. Now, if you were a novelist, you were a playwright, you were creating a story in your own brain, this is where the story would end for you. Let's just be honest. There wouldn't be a scene four. There'd be three scenes in Peter's life and it'd be it. Why? Because there would have only be a scene three and by the way, scene three is not even over. It gets a whole lot worse. It gets way worse. Later on, Jesus tells Peter, he says, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, I'll never deny you. Never going to happen. And the Bible says Peter denied Jesus three times. The Bible says it's even worse than that. Somebody, a slave girl at the, at the fireside there at Caiaphas high priest in the Sanhedrin, he said, aren't you the guy that followed Jesus? And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus is on his way to the cross at this point. And the Bible says, I don't want to turn there, but Luke 22, verse 62, 63, 64, 65. Here's what the Bible says. Why Jesus was walking probably already going to be flogged or he's going at that moment to be crucified. He was walking and immediately while he was still speaking, the Bible says the rooster crowed that Jesus had prophesied and the Lord Jesus turned and looked at Peter and Peter had remembered what he had said to him the night before. You'll th deny me three times. And the Bible says Peter went out and wept bitterly. Can you imagine seeing your Jesus' eyes look at you on the way to the cross after you've just said, I don't even know him. I'm trying to paint a clear picture. None of you are more disqualified than Peter. None of you. It's not bad enough that he denied Jesus three times, but did you get that little point? On the third time, just the moment they were leading Jesus astray, Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter goes away and weeps, bitter, weeps bitterly, and he thinks it's the end of the story. He thinks it's over. Now, if you were a novelist, you were a playwright. You were creating this story. It's where the story would end. The guy that nobody liked in the first place falls on his own sword, kills himself. But I got good news for you. Jesus is not a scene three type of God. Jesus is only a scene four type of God. Jesus is always a scene four type of God. He never ends with a scene three type of God. Jesus in our Savior is a scene four type of God every time. And just like he chased Moses in the desert, he's going to chase after Peter back on the Sea of Galilee. Just like he chased after uh, men of old and, and centuries past, he chased after me in 2002. Why? Because he is a God of four scenes. He's chasing after you today. And there's somebody here today, even in this room, Jesus is chasing after. You think it's after it's all said and done? You think it's done? But let me tell you, what you think is all done is just the beginning of your story. Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus dies and rises from the dead. But if you read the resurrection of Jesus in John 20, you notice it's not the same Peter. Peter's been humbled. Peter feels dejected. Peter feels like a failure. He's no longer arrogant. Ever felt like a failure? Ever felt like you've done something that you never thought you would ever do? You've come to a point where you never knew you would come to? You've told the Lord you'd never do what you did. You feel like everything is done. It's finished. All life is over. There's no way God could get me out of this. He got me out in the past. He loved me in the past. But there's no way after this repeated failure that God could use me. If you've never been to a place, certainly somebody today feels like an absolute total, total failure. And that's where Peter is. He's lost everything. All things are gone. Everything was going okay. He got the gold star. He rebuked Jesus. Everything went.
down from there. And then you come to John 21. Jesus is now risen from the dead. The disciples are back at their home in Galilee, which is far from Jerusalem, by the way. It's a long walk. They left Jerusalem. They go all the way back to Galilee. They're in a boat on the Sea of Galilee fishing. We don't know why they're on the Sea of Galilee fishing. We can only speculate. It certainly does mean, though, that they're doing their old life again. That's what they did before Jesus. They fished, so they go back to doing what they did before Jesus. They just kind of went back. We don't know. We don't know if they were leaving. We don't know if they quit. We don't know what they were thinking. We don't know if they were leaving just for a break because the Jews wanted to kill them. We don't know why necessarily they're there, but, but we know that they're letting some steam off, if you will. Maybe they're running away, but generally speaking, I'll say it this way. When you get under pressure, you run back to the old way. Most people do. When you get under deep pressure, you go back to the old ways. Maybe that's what they're doing. And the Bible says they're on the Sea of Galilee, and the Bible says that a guy shows up on the shore. Notice I said a guy because they do not know this is Jesus Christ. It's a risen Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus. And he yells out to them. He says, hey, guys, you catching any fish out there? Just like he had said three years earlier. Oh, my God. I preached this 50 times, and I never again. Every time I read it again, I see something new. He uses the same words Jesus does in his second call. You guys catching any fish? And what happens in Peter? Woo! Could you imagine what happens in his heart? The same voice that called him three years ago, the same gracious lips that spoke his name three years ago, ignites his auditory nerves, his heart comes alive again, and he realizes, oh, this man on the shore is Jesus. He's back. He's risen again. And the guy on the other shore says, just in case you didn't know, throw the net on the other side. (laughs) At this point, Peter remembers in his mind's eye, this is our Jesus. God had first called me this way. God's called me again. He jumps out of the boat. He swims like mad to the seashore. He has recognized it was Jesus. Jesus has given him another chance. He's calling him again in the same way he called him before. He's given him a second chance. Let me just tell you, there's always a scene four with Jesus. It never ends at scene three. You can come to the end of everything. You can be arrested. You can be strung out. You can be addicted. Your life can be in a place that you never dreamed possible. And yet Jesus still comes and gives a scene for every. Every single time he comes back and he chases him down. This is the unlikely candidacy of a man named Peter. And you can be a total failure. Everything can fall apart around you. All of your marriage can fall around, but there's another chapter with Jesus. And Peter, who desperately wants to be reconciled with Jesus. You ever felt that one time you want to be reconciled? And when Jesus speaks his name, he swims like mad. And he gets to the shore and he finds that Jesus has done the universal symbol for hospitality in the Eastern culture. What's that? You make somebody a meal. Jesus took some fish. He put them on the fire. He created this meal. And over the meal, King Jesus and servant Peter are restored. They're reconciled. Then Peter, the guy who was really rough around the edges, the least likely person who will change the world, is the person God uses to preach the first sermon in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. He gets up and the Bible says that 2,000 people repent from their sins and join the church. Why? Because God believed in Peter more than he thought. And God's plan was bigger than he believed. And failure was no match for grace. No match. If that was the story alone, that'd be amazing. But it's not the story alone. I don't have time to give you the whole story. I want to give you a brief portion of the story of the Apostle Paul. Just the abbreviated form of it. Paul never imagined he would join Jesus' team. The Bible says in Acts 8, 
you'll see on the screen behind me, Paul was breathing out threats against the, verse, uh, against the church. It's amazing when you read, um, when you read verse 3, Acts chapter 8, verse 3. The, it's a meaningful phrase. Saul began to destroy the church. If you like to write in your Bible, your card, whatever you want to do, going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Uh, Saul's brutal. Saul is a terrorist. Saul is uh, modern-day ISIS. Absolute modern-day ISIS. You say, what do you mean, Craig? Yeah, he drags their wives, he drags their daughters off, throws them in prison. Saul was absolutely destroying everyone. He was killing anyone, destroying everyone. But God had his own plan for Saul. That's scene one, killing Christians. Murders. Scene two in Saul's life. Jesus shows up. Saul had made a mess of all these new Christians in Jerusalem after Jesus had risen from the dead. He goes to the chief priest and he says in Jerusalem, he says, hey, I'm gonna take care of the situation in Damascus too. You let me? You let me go kill the Christians there? I'll, I'll, I'll smolder out their wick too. If you'll just give me some letters of permission, I'll go there. I'll round up the people as well. I won't kill them. Here's what I'll bring them back to Jerusalem. We'll throw the men and women and children in prison too. And we'll show these Jesus people what they'll, what we'll do to them if they don't stop preaching. You, you, can I get permission? He gives him permission. So he goes on the road to Damascus. <laughs> By the way, he's not, at least the scripture doesn't say he's on a donkey. We've always said he fell off a donkey, but go read Acts 9. It doesn't say, he just says he fell down. Maybe he did fall off a donkey, we don't know. But he's on his way to Damascus. And the Bible says as he's on his way, Jesus shows up on the road. Pause. Let's just be honest and stop acting like we know the end of the story. Can we, if we can just do it a minute. If you or I were Jesus we would not have dealt with Saul the way Jesus dealt with Saul. Can we, just, can we just admit that for a minute? Can we just, seriously, just admit that? If you were our Jesus and this guy was killing people I loved, if he was making a mess out of something I created, if he was destroying everything I died for just a few years ago, then you and I would not come to that person in love, we would come with holy wrath on the head of that person and we would destroy them right there like a little greasy spot on the way to Damascus. We would exercise force. We would not exercise love. We would not exercise grace. We would not exercise patience. But the Bible says in Acts chapter 9, Jesus had a different plan for Saul. He was the least likely person to change the world. But Jesus knew that if he could take the ferocity with which Saul was trying to destroy the church and turn it in favor of the church, Jesus just might use Saul to change the world. And so Jesus said, I'll take the risk, right? I'll take the choice. I'll take my chances. And he now throws him to the ground. He speaks from heaven. The Bible says in Acts 9, while he's still breathing out threats against the church, I need to tell you that first phrase, breathing out, means the repetition of wrath. It means he was obsessed with killing people. He is a modern-day ISIS person. We need to understand that. God could save a modern-day ISIS person to be a modern-day Paul. The, the head of Taliban, the head honcho, okay? He is content. He's a maniac. Find me a Christian. I'll cut their, fine, I'll take care of him. He's breathing out these murderous threats. He goes to Damascus to find them. Look at verse 3, says of Acts 9. It says, as he nears Damascus on his journey, so, just suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him he fell on the ground and a voice said Saul Saul why are you persecuting me he said who are you and he replied I am Jesus the one you're persecuting the one you're trying to destroy these are real people can you imagine that moment you felt that moment, by the way, in abbreviated form when you're, lit, when you're talking about somebody behind their back. 
and then they walk into the room. Has that ever happened to you? Has it ever happened to you? Okay, cool, just preach your guy. You're talking out loud. I could give you bad stories. You're talking out loud about somebody, and they walk into the room, or they come up behind you and tap you. You never had that happen before. If you haven't, that's the greatest humiliating act in the history of mankind. You feel the shock and terror instantaneously. Okay, it is unbelievable what happens internally. You're talking about, here, they, you're killing these people. You think this Jesus is dead, and he looks at you from heaven and says, I'm Jesus. Imagine the terror. <laughs> Imagine the fright. You think he's dead and gone, and the one you're destroying his people meets you, walks into the room. <laughs> But he doesn't walk into the room with judgment. What kind of Savior is this? This makes no sense. He comes to the most unlikely candidate. He comes to the most despised man. He comes to the man that you would never dream possible of allowing the grace of God to touch his life. You think what you're doing is good and then there he is. You know what happens next? It's amazing. He starts preaching. I don't have time to go the whole story, but he goes to Damascus. He's blind for three days. I'll tell you the rest of the story later. It's an amazing story. He goes to Damascus. What does he start doing? He starts preaching. Now, can you imagine the confusion now? Here's this guy who came to kill everybody. His reputation went before him, and they're like, is this guy crazy? What's going on here? Is this like a facade? And he starts preaching in the very city. He just came to arrest them, right? This is mad confusion. All of a sudden, there's people on his own team. That's the Christians that wanted to stamp him down. The Jesus movement, they're, 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 they start like uh, trying to kill him. Can you imagine the mass confusion? And that's what happens. He goes to Damascus. He starts preaching on the streets. And then they try to kill him so he escapes in a basket down out of a window. That's what Saul does. what Paul does. The Christians are now trying to kill him. He was going to kill them. He now preaches the gospel. They're trying to kill him. He goes back to Jerusalem, folks. He shows up in Jerusalem and the high priest says, Hey, did you take care of the Christians? Where are the Christians? You're supposed to take them back to Jerusalem. Uh, I don't have any Christians. So the high priest goes back to his house. And when he does, he hears that Saul's preaching on the street. What? He's making such a ruckus in Jerusalem. The Bible says the disciples were scared of him. They weren't even sure if he was really on their team. They were terrified. Secondly, the Bible says they took Saul down to the port and sent him back to his hometown of Tarsus. They got rid of him. They were scared he was going to die and get them killed too. You don't believe me? Look at Acts 19, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, look what the Bible says. He tried to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. The Bible goes on to say that they shipped him back off to Tarsus. Paul moved freely in Jerusalem. He was speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He taught and debated the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. The believers, here's what the rest of the verse says, took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Get on a boat, go home. You're going to die, and you're going to kill the rest of us. None of us would have written a story that way. But our God really likes to use the least likely people to change the world. Saul never imagined he would join the Jesus team. There's somebody here today in this church or sitting in this room now, and you think this church thing is maybe even out of your comfort zone. You don't even know why you came here today, much less you never imagined you'd join 
Jesus' team. Let me tell you something. Would you listen to me if you haven't heard me say anything today? God's probably been writing your story in a way you didn't expect because God's always two, three, or four, or 5,000 steps ahead of you. And if you think you're a failure, and you think, how could God ever use me? If you think, how could God ever use my life? This future thing with this faith thing of Jesus, Peter looks from heaven today as the great cloud of witnesses, and he says, if God can use me, what do you think God could do through you? If God could use me, none of you deny Jesus three times. Did any of you deny Jesus three times right here in this seat? Did you, did you look at Jesus in the eye? This is what Peter, the apostle, saying from heaven today. Uh, none of you felt like I felt. If you think you would never, if you look at the people that are preacher people or missionary people or these people who have Bible studies in their homes, what in the world are connect group leaders? Those people are crazy. How in the world are they going to open up their home and talk about Jesus to a bunch of people? How are they going to go on Thursday nights and listen to the Bible be taught for two hours? I could never be those people. Well, what I'm telling you is we're not all that crazy. We're not all that crazy. When I went to Washington, D.C., let me give you an illustration. And I went to the Smithsonian Institute, one of the museums. I love that stuff, but I went into one of the museums. I'm not really big. You can find out for artwork. So I go to the, this art museum, and I'm there walking around, and I do what Americans do. I was done with the whole museum in like 35 seconds. Have you ever been to an art museum before? It's like, oh, there's a horse. Oh, that's cool. That's a cave. That's a blob. Oh, that's a cool thing there. Come on, anybody know what I'm talking about? It's just crazy. It's like, yeah, that's awesome. That's $3,000. You know, it's like, dear God, did my Knox paint that? You know, it's like, what? what's going on here? But I noticed as I was about to leave the museum, true story, that there was this lady who was still staring at one little inch of one corner of the painting. When I walked into the museum, she was staring at that one inch. When I left the museum, she was staring at that one portion. Did I look at her and think, oh, that person's crazy? No, I looked at that lady and said, what does she know about the painting that I don't know? And that's exactly what Christians are. They just keep looking. <laughs> are these people crazy? No, you don't know what they're looking at. You haven't gained insight to what they're staring at. You haven't seen and understood his nature and his character. Why? Because this woman knew something I didn't know about this painting. I just glossed over it. I just moved through. If you think you're the least likely person to join the Jesus team, you might be the most likely person. Paul wasn't the least likely person to change the world. He was the most likely person to change the world. I'll end with this. If any of you wanted to take a course, let's say you want to take a Bible course. If you want to understand the New Testament, there are three things. Everybody say three. Three things you have to understand to really understand the whole New Testament context. And let me give to you what those are. You ready? Roman politics, Jewish religion, Greek culture. If you want to understand the New Testament, you've got to understand Roman politics, Jewish religion, Greek culture. And I want you to see how the wisdom works. If you know Roman politics, Jewish religion, and Greek culture, you understand the whole New Testament. Saul, before he became Paul, was from a city called Tarsus. You never heard of Tarsus? I never heard of Tar Tarsus either until I studied it. Tarsus is in modern-day Turkey. In that time period of Jesus, Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus was the center of Greek culture and Greek education. Athens and Alexandria were on the decline. The center of Greek culture in the day that Paul lived would have been Tarsus. Where was Paul from? He was from Tarsus. The center of Greek culture. Paul's parents were so committed to Jews that they sent him from Tarsus all the way to Jerusalem to study under a guy named Gamaliel. Okay? Gamaliel. Some we call him Gamaliel. He goes and studies under this man who is literally the greatest Jewish scholar in the entire time period of Israel. 
He was the top scholar. Later on, Paul's ministry, Paul's back in Jerusalem and he's preaching the gospel and they're gonna kill him and they're gonna put him in prison, but Paul knows this and throws this crazy unexpected comment on the side. The Jews are gonna take him to prison. The Roman overseers, we're just gonna let the Jews take care of it. Like, like we intervened last time in this Jesus thing and we got us in trouble, so let the Jews deal with their own Jews. Now he's gonna go be killed. But then Paul yells out, I'm a Roman citizen. And in that very moment, every Roman citizen was under the obligatory protection of Rome. And so right there, Rome rescues Paul from the Jews because he was a Roman citizen. God didn't know that, did he? Yeah, he didn't know that at the beginning. He didn't have him born in Tarsus for that reason, right? So notice this. So he's a Roman citizen. Now he's in the middle of a Greek culture and he is studying at the feet of the greatest Jewish scholar. So Rome takes him into their custody. He appeals to Caesar and he preaches the gospel all the way to Rome, to all the regional leaders, to all the local leaders, to all the national leaders. And then finally, Paul was able to preach the gospel to Caesar himself. Why? Because God believed in Paul more than he thought. And God's plan for Paul is bigger than he believed. And here's something really amazing, church. Paul had a protege like every good leader does. He had a protege like every leader. And he mentored this guy. Paul always had a protege. He had tons of them. But one of them, one particular man was a, name, a man named Timothy. And Paul, at the end of his life, he's in prison in Rome. He's writing Philippians. And he sends a letter. And he says to Timothy to fight the good fight, finish the course. And then he says in the last words fan the flame Timothy the gift of God that's in you and he gives in this last letter he's about to die he's poured himself out for the gospel and at the end of Rome or Philippians chapter 4 listen to this look at it on the screen in this little phrase in the text Paul says this and by the way all the believers in Caesar's household send their greeting my God all of the believers in the midst of Caesar's household and at the end of Paul's life at the end of this beautiful and famous letter, this theological wonder work we call Romans. The book of Romans, named after Rome, the believers in Rome, one of the last verses in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, he says, soon the God of peace will crush Satan underneath your feet because not even the gates of hell can destroy the plan of God. Not even the ploy and the tactics of the enemy can ever undo what God does. This is his benediction. This is the confidence he knows in a God who chooses unlikely candidates. God believed in Peter more than he thought and God's plan for Peter was bigger than he believed. And God believed in Paul more than he thought and God's plan for Paul was bigger than he believed. And God believes in you more than you think and God's plan for you is bigger than you believe. This is true. You have no idea what you're seen for is. You have no idea who and what and how and God will use you and you're seen for. You just got to understand. I guarantee you, you wouldn't believe it if God told you what you're seen for was going to be but his plan is bigger for you than you believe and he believes in you more than you think so let's stop questioning God and get on a ship and sail and make our way to Rome Peter the failure Paul the murderer labels destroyed off their life it's now been three weeks ago I was here teaching in our school of ministry on a I believe it was a Wednesday. It was a Wednesday morning. The guys got done with class. We finished up class, and <clears throat> normally we teach out here in the lobby. And you dismiss them out the doors. What I normally do is I go sit back on the DP Kids check-in desk because that's where I work. For If I'm working here from the building, I usually work from right there. So I was going to work there for a few hours, and I walked over to the desk, and I was facing this way, the sanctuary, so I can't see the front door. And I heard the guys go out the door. I heard the door 
instead of closing, I heard somebody like grabbed it. It took too long to close. You just know that, right? You've been here a lot. It took too long to close. And so I thought, well, Armando, Casey, they, they forgot their book bag. They forgot something on the table. So when they, when this, when I'm standing there looking at my computer, I'm thinking, well, they're going to come back by me to my left. I don't even have to look over. And I see a person moving. They're moving. I look over and it's not Casey. It's not Armando. It's not anybody I've ever met. Which we're in a business park, so it's not too unusual. Probably a vendor, and he comes and walks past me, doesn't greet me, looks at me, turns around, starts walking up here to the door. I can tell something's seriously wrong. I'm like, what in the world's going on? I said, sir, how can I help you? He comes over to me and said, my name's Kyle. I said, Kyle, how can I help you? He said, uh, I guess you're not needing any freight delivery in here, are you? I said, no, I don't need any freight delivery. We're a church. He said, you don't need any freight delivery? I said, no. He said, well, man, it looks like y'all got it going on here. And, man, I could tell you, so itched, right? I mean, because ministry opportunities always come in the time that they're most likely perceived and expected. And so I just thought, okay, Holy Spirit, something's going on here. Let's pause. My focus on you. What are you doing? And I could tell. I said, yeah, we're a church here. So been here in this building almost a year. Is it right at a year? I said, that's cool, man. I could tell he's just disturbed. I said, well, listen, since you're here, let me just show you around the building. Yeah. You're a salesman, right? Yeah. So I walk in DP Kids. I come over here. I come in the sanctuary. I open those doors. It's dark in here. I turn on the lights. And he and I stand right there next to the media booth. And he looks at me. He goes, all right, bro, I'm going I'm to cut to the sh-. I said, okay, yeah, cut to the. I didn't say that. I said, cut to it. Your pastor did not cuss right there. It would have been okay if I did. And he said, man, he said, over the last few months of my life, he said, every night when I go to bed, he said, I'm having nightmares in the middle of the night when I'm, demons are coming up and they're sending me to hell. He said, they're, they're condemning me to hell and they're pulling me into deeper and deeper hell. And I said, well, just tell me. He said, man, I was walking by here today trying to make a sale. And he said, as I walked by here, something over this building started drawing me. I said, really? Because we had a prayer meeting in here last night. It was a Sunday night prayer meeting. It was when we all did church-wide, and we prayed for open opportunities and people, the Holy Spirit to draw people. And then I just took my opportunity. I said, tell me what you know about the gospel. And I let him try to explain the gospel, and I could tell him he didn't know it. So now I know I'm understanding. I'm with an unbeliever here. And I said, well, just tell me what's going on in your life. And he said, no, I'm so, I'm so fearful. He said, I just had to come here and share with And so I shared with him the gospel. And this man named Kyle, who's only 23 years old, I said, you know what, God? I usually don't try to seal the deal in the moment, but this is, you're, you're drawing him. Literally, the harvest is falling off of the trees and all Jesus needs is hands we always talk like people are so hard they don't want Jesus not not what I found you go out in the community tell them Jesus they're like falling right into Jesus I don't know it's just been my experience people are ready the harvest is plentiful the laborers are few Jesus doesn't need awesome hands he needs willing hands and what's so amazing is God brought this dude to us I didn't even do anything he brought him in and I said here I shared the gospel and prayed with this dude he began to cry put his head on my shoulder. I began to talk. Got his number. I've been following up with him. We've been talking for the last few weeks. Now I'm trying to get him to make the big step to commit himself. Why? Because he spent four years of his life in college at Georgia Southern. Partying, partying, partying. And here's what I told him. You have no idea how God takes most unlikely candidates like you, Kyle. Because God's plan for you is bigger than you believe. He thinks more of you than you think. This is how our Jesus works. Again.
Thanks so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.